Our scripture reading today is from Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome to Trinity. My name is Jonathan. Get to serve as a pastor of our church. If you're new to uh, church, maybe somebody's invited you around the holiday season. Uh, maybe you haven't been in church in a long time and you've made your way back. You know, this wants, we want this to be a place where you can come, where you can feel comfortable bringing a friend who's outside of Christianity, where you yourself, if you have questions, can come. These are the world's greatest questions. What is life about? There's going to be different perspectives. There are going to be different teachers who are going to try to lead the way. And we're going to take you to the centerpiece of Christianity over and over again. So if you're new to Christianity, if you've been in the church for a while, but you're holding questions, that's okay. These are things that you should have questions about, especially this incredible narrative about Christmas. There's an author, and he's an artist. His name is Scott Erickson, and he says this. <clears throat> he says, the sanitized brand we've created to celebrate Christmas aesthetically suggests we can only experience God with us by cleaning up all of life's messy details. When everything is perfect, we'll get that Christmas. But what we see through the details of the birthing process is that the Christ story is actually about a God who brings salvation into the world through all of those messy details. We're in a series throughout Advent that has been entitled The Prayers of Advent. And of course, you may be familiar with shepherds and sheep and a star, but you're probably less familiar with the prayers that really weave throughout this narrative. And we've, looking at, we've taken a look at Zechariah's song or Zechariah's prayer. Last week, we looked at Mary and her song. And this week, we're looking at this unique song sung by 
angels that serenade this unsuspecting audience of shepherds. But what I hope you begin to sense and feel from Luke 2 is that Christmas and Christianity is anything but sanitized. I mean, it is, it's gritty and it's honest, and you feel the joy on the one hand of the arrival of a baby, but on the other hand, you have this uh, no vacancy in the end part of the story, that there's an unwelcome nature to what's happening, that there's nobody there to greet the arrival of God's son. One writer said, no child born that day seemed to have lower prospects. Think about that. No child born that day seemed to have lower prospects than God's son. Born to peasant parents, a teenage mother, they are out of town, they are on their own. This little one would not have been the odds-on favorite in Las Vegas. It seems like he has nothing going for him. And yet he's supposed to be a king. And then you have this other king at the beginning of the story. His name is Caesar Augustus. He seems like he's got the world on a tightrope. He's got the world on a string. And then you have this other king that's born in a cereal bowl for cows. And you have this collision course course from his arrival in a manger all the way throughout his life till you get to an empty grave to where you're wondering, who really is this king? And if he really did show up that day, that first Christmas, what difference would his life make in my life? That's the question we want to wrestle through as we go through the angels song today. I'm going to take you to the end of that song. We're going to work our way backwards through it. So the three things I'm going to take you through are number one, we're going to see that they sing about the condition of peace. Number two, we're going to look at the absence of fear. And number three, the truth of the story. So the condition of peace, the absence of fear, and the truth of the story. So in part one, let's look again at verse four. Verse four says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. With all of the pain and travail that is necessary for a woman to give birth to a baby, Mary and Joseph endure the birth of their firstborn son. And one writer said, Joseph probably wept as much as Mary did. Seeing her pain, the stinking barnyard, their poverty, people's indifference, humiliation, and the sense of utter helplessness, feeling shame, and not being able to provide for your Mary on the night of her travail, all that would make a man either curse or cry. See, we don't go there that often, do we, in the narrative when we think about the picture of Christmas and what's taking place in this barnyard. We don't think about the emotion. We don't think about the fact that these are two young people who are doing their best they're following the rules and regulations of their day. They have to leave home and family. They've got to travel to a city that's not their own. They're knocking on doors, hoping that somebody's going to open it for them. There is no vacancy in the place that they would have liked to have stayed. So they probably end up in the lower level of a home where the adults and the children would have stayed upstairs and their animals would have been kept downstairs. Probably they're not in a cave necessarily, nor a barn. They're probably in a residence where animals were kept on a lower level. But this is where Joseph says, this is where my baby's coming into the world. Mary's traveled all of those miles, likely on the back of an animal. There's no real evidence of that. Just as they traveled, maybe she walked 40 miles. Obviously, she's in late term. She's in the third trimester. This is a big emotional deal. And Joseph's probably thinking to himself, I hope we can make a home. I hope we can make a home. And they don't. 
So you have all of this emotion, this very real humanity baked into the story. Don't miss it. These are two very young people doing the best that they can. And then Luke, of course, he quickly shifts our attention from Mary and Joseph, and he takes us to shepherds, to an angelic messenger, and then this heavenly choir, much like the little ones, and then the adult one that we had earlier, a heavenly choir filling the night sky. And if you are a skeptic, if you have questions, even if you have been a Christian for a long time, you might stop at this and go, really, an angel? And then a host of angels? This is why I'm not a Christian. See, I can agree with Jesus, but then there's all these crazy details baked into the Christian narrative. Why the angels? I mean, come on. Do we really believe in angels? Let me just simply say this. You should ask questions about that. Do angels really exist? Are they really going to fill the sky and sing? But let me press this simple button, which is the issue isn't the angel. The issue is God. See, if God exists, then could it not be that he could create a a heavenly creature that exists with him and for him and they're at his bidding and do whatever he wants? We don't have to scratch our head and wonder, are there really angels? We need to scratch our head and say, does God really exist? Because if God exists, then he can do anything. And the concept of an angel actually isn't as big of a deal. So I want to always take you back to the reality of God. Is he real? Does he exist? And the Bible gives us enough evidence for us to say, absolutely, God is real. This angelic messenger is just a single person. I wonder who it was. We don't really have them named. Gabriel's been showing up a lot. I can't wait to meet Gabriel and go, what was that like? What was it like when you talked to Mary? What was it like when you showed up on planet Earth to give a message? What was that like? What were their faces like? We're going to talk a little bit about the experience of it. We have a single angel who's giving an announcement, and then this person, this angel says, good news of great joy is coming for unto you, is born this day right down the road in Bethlehem, a baby boy who is your Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And then in verses 13 and 14, glance there. It's literally as if all of heaven has been waiting for this moment. It's as if Jesus, it's as if the Father couldn't keep them in the heavens. It's as if every single angel has been wanting to pronounce this amazing, glorious expression of the glory of God. Nothing higher, nothing's ever been seen like this. They are waiting to sing of it and to speak of it. And they begin to sing about the arrival of God himself in human form on planet Earth. And then they begin to speak about the peace that comes from that. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And we're going to consider those two things for a moment. God's glory and peace in the hearts of mankind. Every one of the angels wanted to be a part of this particular song. They knew what was laying in the manger was the highest expression of God's glory. And they knew that this expression of God's glory would in fact bring peace. Or let me be even more specific. John Piper puts it like this. He says, God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Consider that. God's purpose is to bring you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. If we want peace to rule in our lives, then the text is saying, God, must rule in our lives. There's an author and a writer, a thinker. He's out of Australia. His name is Mark Sayers, and he has brilliantly noted the secular, the secular tendency to try to secure the benefits of Christianity without Christianity. Let me show you what this means. 
People still long for the love and the mercy and the forgiveness and the justice that find its home within the Christian narrative, but they prefer to make an attempt at it without all of the trappings of Christianity or without the king that's at the center of it. We want what Christianity has to offer. We want all the good stuff, but we don't want to be trapped in by Jesus. You've noticed that? A longing for justice. Where does it come from? The secular narrative would say anywhere but Christianity, but you actually can't find it in the secular narrative. So as Sayers had said, is that essentially what we're looking for is the kingdom of God without the king. You see? We want all of the good stuff that Christianity has to offer, but we don't want to have to deal with the baby in the manger. We don't have to deal with the crucified Savior at the end of the narrative. I want all of the benefits of Christianity, love, forgiveness, mercy, justice, but leave out Jesus. And essentially, this is what secularism is also trying to give you, peace of mind, peace of heart, peace in all of our social relationships without the king at the centerpiece of all of this. Peace is one of, if not the greatest need of the human spirit. Consider your life for a moment. Why do we shift jobs so often? Why do we end relationships? Why do we back out of certain situations? Why do we make moves across the country? Why do we take up hobbies with such frequency? I'm so interested in one moment that I shift to the next thing. I'm speaking to myself here. This is not indicting. Think about your life. Think about the decisions you're making. Think about the relationships. Think about the choices we make. There are all sorts of good reasons for making big decisions in our life. You could have toxicity in a relationship. You could have a a toxic work culture. All of those things being unfair and unequal. And you would say, I need a change. The Bible would affirm that. So would Christianity. Wisdom is needed. But so often, consider your life, we are driven by peace or a lack of it in so many of our decisions. The Bible says that our loss of peace with God is at the core of humanity's issues. It's the elephant in the room now. It was the elephant in the Garden of Eden then. Let me give an example. Imagine for a moment that you have bought a new home. It's a serious fixer-upper. You call Chip and Joanna. They are not available, and so you're going to have to figure this thing out on yourself, by yourself. And so you start to fix things, but you realize, man, this thing has got bad bones. It's got a crumbling foundation. The walls aren't sturdy. The, 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 the roof is leaking. We had a little bit of rain last week. It was amazing, by the way. My house had a little bit of ice on the windshield. We were loving life because we're East Coasters, and it felt like we're going to have a real Christmas here. Nothing white yet, but we're praying. Christmas miracles do happen. But consider your home for a moment. How we started talking about winter and snow. This is you bought a fixer-upper, and you're thinking to yourself, man, it looks pretty rough, foundation's crumbling. I know the solution. I'm going to paint it. That's my solution to everything. And it looks bad. Just put some new paint on it. We might be able to fool the neighbors, but you're going to be able to say to yourself, when you lay down at night, I know that the foundation is still unstable. See, and this is essentially the narrative that Christianity is painting about who we are and what it means to be in relationship with a God of peace. At the very beginning, there was peace, and then peace is lost. Biblically, this is called shalom. This essentially means all sectors, everything was working and functioning well. Everything was working because God was in all. God was present. God wasn't absent. God is at the center of the narrative, and there's peace. Peace with God. 
You were made by God. You were made for God. You were made for peace with God. And when that thing is disrupted, you're going to start looking for peace in other places. It's like saying, man, I've got a brand new home. It's a fixer-upper. Just paint the thing. Externals. And so often externals can look like Christian routines, Christian rhythms. And often it's just paint on the outside of our lives. See, but this angel song is this invitation to believe that God's purpose is to give you peace by being the most glorious person in your life. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 contains this note of, I think, sober reality that while peace is offered to everyone, it only comes home to those, quote, upon whom his favor rests, meaning that peace comes to those who make Jesus Christ the centerpiece of their affections. You see that? Those who place their faith in Christ, those who believe in Jesus and say, you're going to be the centerpiece of my loves and my desires, my today and my tomorrow, and that's going to take work and a community. But his peace comes to people who believe. Romans 15, 16, look at this. It says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you what? As you trust in him, as you put your faith in him. As I begin to anchor on him, this is where peace in your life comes from. Think about the things that are not peaceful right now in your life. How are you going to shift it? How are you going to change it? Where are you going to find what you're looking for? The angels sing a song about God's glory and our peace, a peace that comes as we encounter this baby in a manger and we place our faith in who he really is. See, when the biggest issue in your life is settled, when this huge divide between God and man is remedied in the person of Jesus Christ, then the biggest issue in your life is now fixed. Man, I am made for him. I feel separated from him. The reality of sin is going on in my life and my choices and my decisions. I love to live for me. Please don't make sin some kind of big, bag, big, big bad behavior that you engage in and you go, well, you know what? I'm not doing those big, bad things. It is a disposition. It is a frame of mind. It is a frame of heart. It is just simply who we are. I prefer me over you. I prefer my way over God's way. And I live my life in that direction. That's the lane that I'm driving in. And this is what all of us wrestle with. This is what all of us deal with. And what it's caused is, is a breakdown in peace. But when that peace is remedied, when the biggest issue in your life is healed, then you can actually have peace with yourself. And as far as it's up to you, you can have peace with others. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Verse 7, And the peace of God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that a beautiful verse? The peace that God offers you will guard your heart, will guard your mind. Your mind and your heart are the most precious things that you have. What is guarding it? What's setting up the parameters? See, when you have this peace with God, then it enables you to have peace with yourself. The peace of God will settle your anxious mind. And then because you have peace with God, you can also have peace with others. Because when you have friction, when there's a breakdown in relationship, what drives you forward in that relationship is simply this. I know what it costs for God to have peace with me. 
He had to become a man. He had to leave the throne room of heaven and enter into our planet as a baby. And then he died on a cross so that I could have peace. And so when there's friction at the human level, you go, because the gospel is real, because God has come to my planet, because he moved towards me, now, in turn, I move towards other people. It's not about pulling up your boots and deciding to be a good human being. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to transform your life from the inside out, because, as you're going to see in a minute, the story's real. The story's true. Peace with God, peace with myself. And as far as it's up to me, Peace with other people. This peace is announced. It's not achieved. This peace is announced by this angelic choir, and it's a gift received by faith. Let me take you to the point two, the condition of peace, which leads us backwards in the story to the absence of fear. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And when these angels first begin to address the shepherds in the field, their natural reaction is fearful. Yours would be, mine would be too. But then the first thing that they said to them was, in verse 10, fear not, for behold. Very important. Fear not, for behold. And what they're essentially saying is, what this angelic messenger is saying is, look with me. Consider. Ponder. Stop and think with me about what I'm about to say, because what I'm about to show you has the potential to drive out all of your fear. This is great news of incredible joy, and it's being born as we speak. It's the long-awaited Messiah. It's the Savior. He's here. Fear. Think about your life. Think about fear. Fear is a foreign body in the human story. It was not a part of God's original design. When you read through the earliest chapters of the Bible, fear is not part of the narrative. Fear is introduced because of a lack of peace with God, because we decided to live for ourselves. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. It's not complex. They decided to mistrust what was spoken to them. She decided my way is better than his way, and so she took of the apple, and it introduced us to a condition. It's a disposition. Now, because of a lack of peace, I have fear in my life. And guess what I'm going to do? If I'm strong and gifted, I'm going to stand on my gifts. I'm going to present a facade. I'm going to show you something that eliminates all of the fear. I'm going to lay down at night and go, have I done enough? And listen, while you're strong, while you have strength in your mind, strength in your heart, you have a lot of courage, you're going to feel like you're covering it up. But then a point in your life is going to come because we all change, we all age. You're going to have to reckon with what's been there your whole life. Am I okay? Have I done enough? Have I lived well? Have I loved well? These are the world's best questions. Have you done enough? All sorts of layers of fear from our past. Fear in the moment, fear about the future, fear about a pandemic, fear about tomorrow. We're going to be wearing certain types of masks and we have to come into different sorts of spaces. What's going on with our world? All sorts of layers of fear. Fear is very real, but it's not part of the original story. 
loneliness and anxiety and depression and isolation and frustration, these were not part of the original storyline because God was there, because God was all and in all. So the question is, why fear the future if you know that it's in the hands of a God who is loving and in deep control of all things? Why fear public opinion, what people are going to say or not say about you, if God continually speaks a word of good and gracious and son and daughter and beloved and mine over your life? See, that's exactly what was happening in the Garden of Eden. No fear because he's here. I don't worry about tomorrow because he's here. I don't worry about who I am because he's told me who I am. Why live with all those fears if God is there? God's presence meant real security, love, acceptance, and joy. Remember those words. Love, security, I got them out of order. Security, love, acceptance, and joy. Imagine them as a lake for a moment, okay? Strange image. But consider that this is a big lake And it's filled with love and security and meaning and joy and happiness and satisfaction. You can picture it. But then at one end of it is a huge dam. And all those things are being hemmed in by that dam. And that dam is God because God is holding all of that together. This is a beautiful lake that you want to be a part of. It's being held together firmly and strongly. But if you remove the dam, you quickly notice that the lake begins to drain. You take God out of the equation and all of a sudden nothing's holding it together. Where's the love? Where's the joy? Where's the peace? Where's the forgiveness? Where's the peace of mind and heart? Now you have to plug the holes. And that's the condition that we're all in. Peace is missing. How am I going to fill it up? And that's why when the the angels arrive with this announcement, they're saying, let me tell you something that can totally change your life. Let me tell you something. A baby has arrived. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men, those who believe and trust, and peace on earth, because the most glorious thing has finally arrived. Put him at the center, and you'll have peace. Leave him on the sidelines, and you'll be searching. I mean, that is the message of Christianity. And it's this audience of shepherds that confirms who this message of fear not is actually for. Matt Chandler puts it like this. In first century Judea, shepherds were considered outsiders on the edges of normal society. They were so mistrusted that their testimony was inadmissible evidence in a court of law. The most pious of Jews would not buy milk, lambs, or wool from shepherds. They assumed that it was stolen. The religious elite of that day saw them as unclean, filthy, unwanted, and outside of God's favor. You have to imagine that God is not concerned that in 2021 that we're going to enjoy setting up a nativity scene outside of our churches or in our yards, and we're going to ooh and awe at them because there's a few sheep and there's a few shepherds and there's a star somewhere up top. This is not what the narrative is about. It's about the simple fact that God shows up in unexpected places to unwelcome and unwanted people. And he goes, I've come for them. Jesus Christ could show up to anybody, anytime, any place, and he chooses the outsider, the unwelcomed, the unlovely. He goes, I've come for them. I've come for them. And he announces this profound, glorious moment to the shepherds, which means that the joy of Christmas, the doctrine of this birthday, is for anyone. 
It's for everyone. It's not for the elite. It's for those who imagine that there's no hope outside of Jesus. The message of Christmas is that you are never too far gone. You cannot disqualify yourself from this God's love, nor can you earn it. Salvation is a gift. And the freedom he offers is to anyone who will receive him by faith. The proud are not going to want anything to do with him. But those who are humble of heart, who know their need, will find it met in Jesus. Can you imagine what your life would feel like if fear was not a part of your day? Certainly it won't be fully eliminated, this side of our meeting of Jesus. But it can change things. The gospel can change things. It's not just an ancient message of a man who rose and died again. It is the power of God for you right now. The absence of fear. Let me take you quickly to the third part, the truth of the story. The condition of peace. Peace is broken. Peace is announced. It's not achieved. It's a gift. Jesus comes to remedy peace. He says, I've come to be the savior of the world. Sin is part of this thing that we are now swimming in. Sin is an offense before God, which means only God can forgive it, which is why this baby had to be fully man and fully God. Sin is an offense before him, and Jesus shows up to heal it. This is the beautiful doctrine of this peace given to us. The peace drives out fear. And then thirdly, how can it really work? How can it drive out real-life fears? can only do it if the story were actually real, too. N.T. Wright, he says, Christianity is about something that happened, okay? Christianity is about something that has happened. Something that happened to Jesus of Nazareth. Something that happened through Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, Christianity is not about a new moral teaching, as though we were morally clueless and in need of some fresh or clear guidelines. Christianity isn't about Jesus offering a wonderful moral example, as though our principal need was to see what a life of utter love and devotion to God and to other people would look like so that we could try to copy it. Christianity is all about the belief that the living God, in fulfillment of his promises... And as the climax of the story of Israel has accomplished all of this, the finding, the saving, the giving of new life in Jesus. See, and this is why Luke writes at the very beginning of this chapter, he says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. In those days, not once upon a time, in a specific place, not in Never Never Land, but in a place called Bethlehem. Was some crazy king was ruler? Maybe, but he's got a name and he actually existed in human history. Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Augustus was the emperor of Rome. In those days, a real person, her name was Mary. She was a teenager. She was married to Joseph. He was a carpenter. In those days, a baby was born. And as incredible as it may sound, Luke writes these things so that you might have certainty about this story, that you might be able to trust and believe. And yet, let me take you here as we close. There's a twist in this whole narrative. Frederick Buchner says, for those who believe in God can never in a way be sure again. What do you mean? I thought Luke was writing about certainty. Buchner says, for those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. 
Once they have seen him in a stable, they can never be sure where he will appear or to what lengths he will go or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of man. If holiness and this awful power and majesty of God were present in the least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound but that holiness can be present there too. What he's saying is, what else would this God do? What else is he going to do? I give witness to him that he's born in a manger, that God becomes a baby. What else is he going to do? And the New Testament tells you he's going to live an impeccable life of love. He's going to give up his life for you at the end of the narrative because that's what the story was about from the very beginning. He's going to swap places with you. He's going to remedy peace with God by becoming the, the problem, by becoming the sin itself, by being pinned to a cross, you go free. What else is this God going to do for me? Where else is he going to show up in my narrative? You see it over and over and over again. The beginning is just the beginning of who he really is. On a real cross, on a dark day, in a real city, the purpose of Christmas would be fulfilled at Calvary. Mark 10, 45 says this, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Somebody stops you and says, I heard you go to a Christian church. I heard you celebrate Christmas distinctly. What's Christmas about? You can go, it's about the cross. He arrived on our planet to heal us. God came to ransom my life. God came and he had a birthday so that I could have peace with God, peace with myself, and peace with other people. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It really happened. And listen, you have a choice now. You can live as if the story's not real. You can live as if it's not history. You can live as if all of this just kind of happened. Or you can say, my God entered into my world to save me. That's what it's about and to save us, and to give us purpose as we move forward in this life, which is to glorify him. And when you glorify him, you have peace. That's where it comes from. It comes from him. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, the only question each of us has to wrestle with is how will we respond to the profound reality of Christmas? Will I live as if it never happened, or will I rearrange my life as an apprentice of Jesus, following where he takes not just me, but us? And where you take us is to a cross, and you invite us to lay down our lives at your feet, but it's not to pay you back. It's not to earn anything. It's just out of grateful response for who you are and what you've done. Christmas and Easter are inseparable because you had a birthday in order to ransom us, to make a payment for us. What's Christmas about, dear Christian? It's about my Savior. Lord Jesus, would that sink deeply in as we exchange gifts? What a beautiful picture that we will be giving gifts to other people who did not earn it, who have not worked for it, 
but we receive presents on your birthday. See, that is the centerpiece of Christianity. It's grace. It's mercy. We receive the gift of life, and you received our sin on the cross. Please, Jesus, as we sing these last songs, let the truth go in deep. If there are friends here who don't have peace with you, move on their heart. Change things in their life. Open them up to the reality that they have plugging the, they've been plugging the holes in that dam called their daily existence for so long, and you have come to say, let it be me. I will hold together that beautiful thing called your life, and you are searching for love, meaning, joy, and purpose. Let it be me. This Christmas, change all of us, we pray in his great name. Amen.